Welcome to the Tamarin Learning Podcast, where host Dr. Kirby Ross-Plock speaks with experts on many topics relevant in the ultra-high net worth family wealth management space. Kirby is author of several books, including The Complete Family Office Handbook, and shares her expertise consulting with families and family offices. Kirby is also the founder of Tamarind Learning, an online wealth education platform that develops practical, foundational learning programs for beneficiaries to help them prepare for responsible stewardship of wealth. Welcome to the Tamarind Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Kirby Rossblock, and I'm here today with Christina Burroughs and Will Frolish from MRA Associates, and they're in Phoenix, Arizona. And the topic of today is capital sufficiency. Now, both Will and Christina are subject matter experts on the topic of capital sufficiency. In fact, they contributed a case in chapter six of the revised second edition of the Complete Family Office Handbook all about capital sufficiency and the importance of planning. Now, both Will and Christina are part of MRA Associates, as I shared, which recently has gone through a merger with uh, Trust, or Cat Trust, excuse me. And this is an exciting new transition, but they're continuing to do much of what they've done in the past, uh, doing wealth planning, financial planning. Christina also was head of private client service at MRA. So this is really a continuation. So, Christina, maybe you can clarify what exactly is capital sufficiency, because it may not be a term that all of our listeners are familiar with. Thanks, Kirby. Yeah, so capital sufficiency is the process by which a family determines if they have enough capital, assets, liquid or cash flowing assets, to support their objectives. And each family's objectives vary. The most common thing that we see is families are trying to determine if their assets will support their living needs over the course of the rest of their lives. But beyond that, there's all kinds of other planning opportunities with capital sufficiency to determine, can a family give away assets during their lifetime? What happens if they wait until death to do so? What about, impacts on the next generation. Sometimes capital sufficiency involves multi-generational planning. And the tool specifically that we use for capital sufficiency is something that we refer to as Monte Carlo analysis. So capital sufficiency in and of itself isn't Monte Carlo analysis. In fact, the old school way of doing capital sufficiency was to write it out on a piece of paper or spreadsheet it out on Excel, but that used to uses um, straight line analysis. So it assumes that assets grow or throw off, off cash flow at a steady rate. Mm. And Monte Carlo analysis introduces variability of returns and cash flow into the equation, which is much more lifelike as we know. And so the process of capital sufficiency um, utilizes a number of iterations. In fact, when we're running capital sufficiency analysis, we use a thousand iterations, which is very much like running a thousand lifetimes for an individual with a random disbursement of returns um, around the statistic, the statistical analysis for their portfolio or their cash flow generating assets. And then we're able to use those assumptions, those returns that are coming out of the analysis to come up with reasonable, meaningful averages that help give us a sense of whether or not uh, the lifestyle is sustainable. Giving away the gift may, leaves their lifestyle sustainable, et cetera. 
Well, it sounds like this is an incredibly powerful financial planning tool and might be really, really helpful, especially at the start of a new year when you're really starting to map out what are your goals? What are the things you're trying to accomplish? Do I have enough money to do it or will I overextend myself? Maybe, well, you can share more how this relates to financial planning and to goal setting. Sure, of of course. And and it's a great tool for financial planning and goal setting. And so like any good planning or or any good goals, you you start with an objective. And so I'm going to reference the the chapter that we co-contributed on chapter six. And and the gist of that was more or less that you had a family uh, and the family wanted to leave each of their four children a certain dollar amount in terms of inheritance and then leave another additional dollar amount to charity. And so let's call it 10 million to each of the four kids. So that's 40 million and then 25 million to charity. And so you, you would need net of estate taxes, net of any other expenses at the end of their, their death at whatever moment that is, you'd need at least $65 million in order to meet that objective, which is that, that goal that you're trying to accomplish. And so you know, Christina referenced the simulations. And so w- with the Monte Carlo as an example, you could simulate out a thousand different possible lifetimes. And in the chapter, I believe we were using about a 20 year time, time horizon. And so you would be projecting out their balance sheet from today, 20 years from now, and you'd be able to look at a thousand different possible lifetimes of a thousand different possible stock markets and a thousand different possible scenarios. And you'd be able to look through each one of these thousand scenarios and say, okay, in how many of those cases was, was the net estate, net of all taxes and of all expenses, 65 million or greater at the end of 20 years and say it was 700. And so, okay, so... 700 out of a thousand cases, they exceeded that desire to leave their kids 10 million each and 25 to charity. And so you would say that that 70% of the time they were successful. And so that tends to be the, the metric that you hear in Monte Carlo, probability of success. And so that's a probability of success. I mean, 700 out of a thousand possible lifetimes, they were successful. And so the, the, the thing is, is I think from advisors, from our perspective, you, you then take that to the client we have a tendency to say, to like apply our opinion to whether or not we think the 70% is successful. And, and I don't think that's appropriate. It's actually one of the things Christina taught me early on in my career is it, it's not my opinion that matters. It's the client's opinion. And so you, you provide that information to the client and then you listen and it's up to them to decide whether or not that's successful. Um, if it doesn't meet their comfortability level, um, then you can go back and you can tweak the analysis. And this is where the art comes in. And so it's, it's the art of the discussion and the art of the tweaking that then leads to various different scenarios and good conversations. Because there, there's obviously ways that you can increase success. You know, one way would be to cut down spending. So, okay, if we decrease spending by 10%, well, now all of a sudden 800 out of 1,000 cases are successful. Is that okay with you? Um, in the case study that we did in the book, um, it was related to spending, but it was a little bit different topic that the way that we cut expenses was they were debating whether or not to fund a single family office, a more expensive single family office versus a less expensive alternative, a multifamily office. And that changed the probability of success. And so it's, and and it's, again, it's not, it's not the analysis that's really important to the planning. It's that, it's that feedback and subsequent conversations. Well, it also sounds like the tool is only as robust as the advisor Mm -hmm. delivering the tool. So (laughs) At the end of the day, it's that old adage of know your client and really understanding how to interpret the results and the findings. Because yes, the tool is objective, but you at the end of the day know the nuanced nature 
um, of your clients. So it's, again, full disclaimer, it's, it's not perfect as no tool is, but it has a lot to do with the working relationship. And really, I think a client being honest, maybe Christina, you can give some anonymous examples or stories yeah. of how capital sufficiency has really made a difference or worked. Yeah, so there's a couple of things. I mean, broadly speaking, we've had countless examples of opportunities to use this tool to help clients identify how much risk do they need to take with their investment portfolio or can they afford to take with their investment portfolio in order to accomplish their objectives or how much can they give away? Some of the things that uh, we've been talking about up to this point. There's a couple of examples that come to mind um, and they're different from one another. So I'm gonna distinguish between them. The first is in a situation where we had a family, uh, four generations currently are the, uh, are the beneficiaries of a discretionary pot trust, very unusual, created in the 60s, subject to the rule against perpetuities. And this pot trust is, is sending distributions to four generations. And that number of generations is growing over time as exponentially are the number of people represented in that family group. And so no surprise that creates a mathematical, if not human tension, right? Because the more that's distributed to the earlier generations and the more, the higher the percentages that's being distributed earlier on, the lower the likelihood is, yeah, you're shrinking your pot. Um, or even if you're not shrinking your pot, if you're maintaining your pot on a inflation adjusted, person adjusted basis, future beneficiaries or the, the, the later generations will receive less of the asset. And so this tool um, was very helpful in, you know, th that tension is not going to go away. That's a reality of the nature of the way that trust was designed and the structure of the family and so forth. But this tool was very helpful in determining what was a sweet spot, what, what was a sustainable level of distribution to the beneficiaries that seemed fair and equitable, not only to those alive today, but those who are not even yet alive in the family group, um, because this trust will likely be around for another 80 years or so. And so that's one example of its usefulness. Now that was taking sort of the cards we were dealt, a trust that already existed, um, where, we, where we had discretion to make distribution decisions, but that was really the only variable we could affect. So that's, that's one type of example. Another type of example, is on the front end of planning with a, um, a family who has a substantial piece of real estate um, that is used. It's, it, um, it's productive, it's used broadly by a number of family members. And generation one really wanted to create an environment where if generations two and three and beyond wanted to continue to use the, the um, property together that they could, which meant, first of all, we had to identify how much money did we need to set aside out of their estate um, when the time comes to essentially support the needs of that real estate. And so this was a useful tool for that, number one. Number two, it also enabled us to test that first that first number, what, what was that number? What did that number need to be? And did that jeopardize generation one's ability to accomplish their own lifestyle objectives and have comfort and flexibility and freedom for the rest of their lives? So we were able to, to sort of find um, the balancing point between those two objectives because to a certain degree, they're in competition with one another. 
And then lastly, because we incorporated this into the overall estate planning, which is maybe beyond the scope of capital su sufficiency per se, um, but it was really important to this family that there not be a financial uh, that there not be handcuffs, that the, that the subsequent generations not be tied together to this piece of real estate if that's not what they desired for themselves and each other. On the other hand, we were able to be thoughtful about the family's other objective, was, which was there wouldn't be a financial incentive to cash it in, take the money and run, so to speak. And so we started with capital sufficiency as a way to identify some of the mathematical elements of this, but we, were, we then wove it very carefully into new estate planning, which was to accomplish the family's objectives. So I can imagine how a tool like this that can diffuse, right, the anxiety and stress, which we know in spades has been rampant just in our daily lives. But if you can get some clarity and some confidence back to you, Will, about having a higher probability of success with some of these different iterations from the simulation that either in the pre-planning sides, your example with the estate plan, or in the other side with the trust that already had embedded restrictions, that you're starting to build visibility, transparency, mm -hmm. confidence that this, that there's a road, a pathway to accomplishing the goals and that those probabilities are either there or not there from a decision-making standpoint. I'd love to hear from you, Will, about what you've seen, how the tool has been able to be utilized or give some other examples of application well sure so you just teed up this concept you used the word diffuse anxiety um and i i love that term because we've talked about it from the planning sense thus far um but it can also be used from the emotional sense or the behavioral sense and so i just i mean I'm, I'm talking a few weeks ago just went through a scenario where i have a client that has very material liquid assets very material balance sheet there is clearly any sane human being can look at this and say there's plenty of money here to to last her many lifetimes over and by no means should there be any angst about giving money away and she needs to give money away or else there's going to be estate tax implications but there was just this emotional like a, a hesitation and i think a cautious like a, a a defensive you know type personality um and so we had a lot of trouble of getting anywhere remotely close to a number because she needs, she, we need to take advantage of current estate tax law, um, and and the number needs to be fairly material, and so she needs to take a big a big bite, for lack of better words. Um, but she wasn't really willing to get anywhere near a number that was reasonable um, until we started in doing some Monte Carlo analysis and some and some capital efficiency planning, and there was something about walking through that process. So her helping with the assumptions process, so her articulating her lifestyle needs, the assets that she has, um, and then putting it on paper, and in this case, obviously a computer, but projecting it out, visually showing it to her, walking through the discussion very, very logically. Um, and it just really spoke to her and I think comforted, comforted her. And so then we made, once we kind of oriented ourselves, um, we made the objective, okay, let's maximize, what's the absolute maximum gifting capacity? And so we identified a number, so let's just call it 10 million for, for sake of argument. So 10 million is the maximum number. And you could give that away and with an 80, we'll go back to the probability of success. If we ran a thousand simulations, 800 of those thousand simulations, you were still successfully able to live your lifestyle and support yourself for the rest of your life, giving 10 million away. And so that's 
our maximum capacity, let's call it. Um, and then what we did is we just took the midpoint and went a little bit higher. And so we ultimately yeah. ended up at 60% of that maximum capacity number. And then that to her felt great because you know the maximum capacity number, she knew that that was plausible. She saw it and she knew it was plausible that could happen. Um, and then dialing it all the way back to 60% of that number, that provided a substantial amount of cushion to where she was still comfortable. And then the, the beauty of it is, is if you would have dialed back our conversations, you know, three weeks before that process, she wasn't even remotely close to the 60% number, right? It's multiples beyond what she was. And so we ultimately got to a much better, better situation. You know, it's, it's not the maximum amount that she could have given away, but it's materially better than what she was originally at. And there's enough time there that we can continue. You know, we now have this base case call it and we continue to go back and revisit it year after year and continue to put gifting programs in place and you know hopefully she lives many more years and over the many more years that she has left we're able to continue to give that away and she she doesn't ultimately end up with a taxable estate but yeah i love that example and i love both uh, both of your examples on how this can be enacted and at the end of the day um, a tool is, again, as good as its advisor, but it has so many applications. If there were one or two takeaways each of you wanted to give about the merits of going through a capital sufficiency experience, do you have any thoughts? I guess what I would say is in the last six months, I have heard two people say that they've never been through anything like this. And it was well worth every dollar, every ounce of energy that it took to put into the process to make it effective. That would be number one. And, and that's coming back from folks who are analytical, um, professionally um, paid skeptics kinds of people to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so that was top praise for the process for certain. And the other, Kirby, I think that you're making the point is this process is only as good as the advisors, as well as the engagement and input of the assumptions. Mm -hmm. And then I think it's absolutely, absolutely critical that everyone understands coming out of this, this is not telling us what the future holds. Mm -hmm. This is giving us a directionally accurate idea of what the range of outcomes could be. And it's really important to go into it with the humility um, of understanding what the tool does and doesn't tell us. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think with that humility, then we can use it in the way that Will just described to develop confidence and, and, and move away, move out of sort of decision paralysis and into effective decision making because we have a sense at least of the range of, of, out of possible outcomes. Mm -hmm. What about I'll, you, Will? I'll echo everything that Christina just said. And, and I'll just add that um, I think it's going to be a credibly useful tool in the estate planning realm. And so I, I think there's a hesitancy sometime because of the term sufficiency. Um, so traditionally, this would be associated to finding out if a family has enough money to last their lifetime. And of course, with almost all of the clients that we as a group work with, that, that's not a question. Of course, they have enough money to last their lifetime. But where this can be so useful is in that estate planning, legacy planning, talking with the patriarchs as, as a couple or whatever the situation is and, and showing them what the family balance sheet looks like 20, 30 years from now, possible arranged to Christina's point, we don't know with certain, um, but showing them what it could look like and that under these scenarios, now what do you want that estate plan to look like? How do you want these assets to flow? Um, you know, what part do you want going to charity? And, and I just, I think that 
um, that part is underrated a lot of times. And if, if you're looking to refresh that estate plan, if you're talking about legacy, next generation planning, it is an incredibly useful tool. Excellent. Well, I do know that it has merits and applications too for beneficial owners who may not know mm-hmm. how much they need to earn versus what their trust may supplementally provide them versus acquiring a business or starting a business or taking time off to get a degree or, I mean, we're not traveling and seeing the world at the moment, but I do think there's so many great applications for this tool. I'm so thankful for both of your time today to talk about capital sufficiency, just sharing with our listeners more about its applications and how it can be useful. And I look forward to digging into more capital sufficiency in 2021. Again, Will and Christina contributed to the case in chapter six, all on capital sufficiency planning um, in the Complete Family Office Handbook. So thank you so much for joining the Tamron Learning Podcast today. And signing off is your host, Kirby Rosbach. Thanks, Thank Kirby. you, Kirby.